Now, if you would, stay standing for our scripture reading, which comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 26, and then verses 56 and 57. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The sting of death, the de- the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. And uh, if, you, if you're curious, is Ben always like that? The answer is yes. I feel so welcomed. Thank you, Ben. Uh, genuinely, uh, I'm grateful for everyone's service this morning uh, leading us to the place where we are now. I, I really believe that because of the prayer and practice that everyone put in from the musicians to Ben to lead us to this point, uh, we are all more prepared, God willing, to hear these truths from 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I was thinking about uh, this morning, and I thought about the fact that every age is marked by some sort of big deal, right? For example, every September in our country, since 2001, there's a commemoration of 9-11, right? That was a big deal in that 10-year period in that decade, and yet we still commemorate it every year, 17 years later. We're closer to 20 years than we are to 10 years. That's just mind-blowing. And we could, we could search our own lives, and we could find these big deal moments. Maybe it's the birth of a kid. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's the acceptance to a program or, or a promotion. You know, last year, we, we celebrated, commemorated the anniversary of 
the Protestant Reformation. 500 years. That's a long time. 500 years. And it wasn't just Christians who commemorated this. It was, excuse me, it was non-Christians. Why? Because it has this lasting effect on the world. It has a lasting effect on language and on publishing. Whole industries were changed because of the Protestant Reformation. And so it's right to commemorate it. A big deal 500 years ago. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I believe there is one big deal of the entire universe. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. That actually is the big deal of the universe. It towers over everything else that's ever happened and that ever will happen. We have to understand today that what we're celebrating is the big deal. Now, for some of you, I know that may seem over the top. It may even seem arbitrary, right? A lot of big deals have happened. And so what, honestly, if 2018, roughly, years ago, a Jewish man raised from the dead? So what? It'd be fascinating for sure. It would be amazing. It would be unprecedented. But would it be a big deal for you and me tomorrow morning or right now? In order to say yes to that, We have to understand that there's a context to this big deal. There's actually a war going on all around us. And it's been going on, the Bible tells us, since at least Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world. And ever since then, there has been a war that happens at every level of the cosmos. No one gets off unscathed by this. It affects our minds. It affects our hearts. It affects the very material universe of entropy. Things die. Things decay. This is all collateral damage of this war that's being waged between good and evil, between life and death, between light and darkness. And when we put it all into context, we understand that the resurrection is the decisive moment in a war between this good and evil, between this darkness and light, between life and death. When put in the context of what God is up to in the world, we begin to see that the resurrection actually has begun a new world in our present world. We actually see that death is the weapon of mass destruction in the enemy's arsenal. And in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have the great reversal of death. We have sins forgiven, so now there is nothing the enemy can hold against us. That's what Ben means when he says the devil was defanged, or even now death is reversed. So the picture of Christ as our victor, which we are going to talk about today, comes from the sphere of this conflict and combat between God and his enemies. God has been at war for his people and for his plan and purposes since the beginning of sin's entrance into the world. And so resurrection then is actually the proof that Christ is the victor. He's the proof that he is the big deal of the universe. 
You see, he's not just a man who happened to rise from the dead, but he's God's man at God's time to save God's people and to restore all things. There's nothing bigger than that. I mean, just try to think about it. I mean, this is genuine. I'm laughing. Even as I say it, why would we ever think that anything else is more important than this? It's laughable. And I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Well, let's keep going before I get off on a tangent here. First, first point is this. Simply put, resurrection, okay, is proof of Christ's victory over sin and death. It's proof of Christ's victory. Now, grab this worship folder uh, on the back. You're going to see the, the text because we're going to work through this. And if, you, if you're not looking at it, I think you might get lost, okay? So, so let's do this. First of all, in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, it's quite a long chapter. Uh, if you look at it in your Bible, I'm um, looking at it here. It's, it's 58 verses, right? It's a long chapter. And in the whole chapter, Paul is naming that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the Christian faith. You know what that is, right? You pull out a linchpin, the whole thing falls apart. The resurrection is the linchpin, but not just some notion of a spiritual awakening, like that's what resurrection means, but he's saying the bodily resurrection, a dead man so, who, whose body was, had gone cold and began to stiffen on Saturday. Okay, that his body was actually brought back to life. That that bodily resurrection is the linchpin. That's what he's, he's arguing for, and it has a lot of implications. In fact, Paul says that the very good news that he had preached to the Corinthians was that, in fact, God is reconciling the world to himself and forgiving their sins so that they could enjoy life with God. And he wants them to be reminded that this thing God has done in Christ was not merely a new philosophy or spirituality, but it happened in space and time. So we'll get to our verses in a second. But earlier in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, Corinthians, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Pretty specific. There's a flow, there's logic, there's history to this. And Paul uses this as a, a large hook to hang the rest of the chapter on. And really, his whole ministry is on this hook. But here's the question. Why is it necessary to say that Christ was raised physically from the dead? Obviously, there was some confusion in the Corinthian church, and there is no doubt some confusion for us. Well, he, he answers the question. Look with me, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So vain meaning empty. It's worthless. There's not a cent of worth, monetarily speaking. You're not even worth a penny. It's nothing. And then in verse 17, he gives another answer. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That is actually a crucial phrase. You are still in your sins. So you see, if, if they're still in their sins, any hope that they think they have in Jesus is an empty hope. And he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, if it just sort of makes us feel good right now. And that's all it is. Then we are of all people most to be pitied. 
One commentator says at this point, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that means we not only do not have present forgiveness, but have lost our hope for the future as well. And if we have believed in the future, when there is no future, then all of human beings, we are of the most to be pitied. And it's not because Christian existence is interested only in the future, but because the loss of the future means the loss of the past and of the present. And this is what he's saying. Some of us get confused and we think that Christianity or the resurrection only matters for the future when we die. But actually, Christianity is a faith where the past matters and the future matters. So if Jesus died for our sins, that matters. And if he's going to raise us from the dead in the future, that matters. And if you have the past and you know where you're going, then that should absolutely direct and overwhelm your present. But if Jesus, in fact, didn't rise from the dead for our sins, right? Paul says he was raised for our justification. If that didn't happen, then of course the future isn't going to happen. And even if Jesus raised from the dead, but that means we're not going to be raised from the dead in the future, then we have no hope right now. And why are we playing? Right? Why are we playing at this? You see, there are people all over the world. There were people in, in the Roman world, Paul himself. They're being persecuted for this. And Paul's saying, if there's no hope for the future, then what are we doing? Why would we undergo this? And so you see, the Christian gospel is situated in history. And things in the past and the future affect our present. And the Christian gospel is situated in an actual war between good and evil. And this is a war that no one escapes. This is a war that no one can win on their own. And not all who know... Sorry, let me say it this way. Not all people know that there's a war going on. They just know they're living in a broken world. But even they can escape the effects of the war. This war between good and evil, that's waged at every level. It's waged in their relationships. It's waged in their discontentment. It's waged in that longing for something more that we just don't quite get to. Everyone is affected. No one escapes and no one can save themselves. And for Paul, there are implications of this message. There are implications for Christians who trust wholly in these past events of Jesus' death and resurrection and the future event of our resurrection. And for Paul, there's a lot riding on this logic that it all fits together. And in verse 20, Paul takes a turn from this what if, right? Because clearly, look at me in verse 20. He's talking about all that that would happen if it wasn't true. But he says, in fact, in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so we know first fruits of a crop, for example, is proof that there's more to come. And so for Jesus, as our Savior and our victor, since he was raised from the dead, Paul's arguing, then we know he is but the first fruits. Everyone who's in Christ will also raise from the dead. That's what first fruits means. So he's arguing here, listen, good news is that Jesus, in fact, is raised from the dead. And Paul begins to describe how this thing's going to work itself out. Look with me in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, he means the second coming, those who belong to Christ. 
will be raised, he means. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So you see, everything will perfectly reflect God's plan. That's what it means for God's kingdom to come. There will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more wars. There will be no tears. There will be no racism. There will be no oppression. There will be no poverty. There will be no abuse of any kind. That's what happens in verse 28, which we didn't read, when God becomes all in all, he says. And so Jesus, then, is our warrior king, our victor, our champion, working to complete his mission of rescuing his people from all evil, the most vicious enemy being death. And so you see, we're all in a war that's heading towards death. No one escapes. No one saves themselves. But in comes a warrior. In comes a champion. A victor we see now in the resurrection, our Lord Jesus. And I want to go to another place in Paul's letters quickly in Colossians where he powerfully describes this in a different way. In Colossians 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses. There's dead and alive language here as well. He says to the Colossians, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then this is what happened. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this is a picture that they would have been familiar with when a group of people wins victory in battle. And when you win victory in battle, sometimes you would line up certain people from the opposing country or uh, people that you were fighting, and the king would probably be in front, right? He would be in front. And then there would be some people behind, all defeated, of course, and then there will be some spoil from the war, from the victory. And those people will be stripped for sure of their weapons, possibly of their clothing. And then march through the city of the victors to mock them, to shame them. And the idea is clear. They are powerless. They can do nothing. All threats are gone. All power is gone. All hope for them to overturn this victory is gone. And Paul says, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Because you see the Bible, cross and resurrection go together. When you say cross, you imply resurrection. When you say resurrection, you imply cross because they're inseparable. They need each other in order for this victory to happen. And Jesus overcomes our enemies. He overcomes and shames them so that you and I can get rid of our shame, so that you and I can actually have hope. 
But I want to notice how he destroyed death. Ben already mentioned it. It was by his death that he destroyed death, but not just any type of death. Death on a cross, a humiliating and disgraceful cross. And so this is the beginning of the second half of the sermon, where we see the gospel and Jesus as our victor actually turns everything upside down when we tend to think of power, when we tend to think of victory and control and all types of things. And I want to make the transition with this quote, this reflection by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. She says this, religious figures are not usually associated with disgrace and rejection. Pause. Of course not. Think about that. Think about all the heroes uh, in history past, whether it be in different religions or whether it be um, in myth. Religious figures are not usually associated with disgrace and rejection. We want our objects of worship to be radiant, dazzling avatars, offering the potential of transcendent happiness. The most compelling argument for the truth of Christianity is the cross at its center. Humankind's religious imagination could never have produced such an image. Wishful thinking never projected a despised and rejected Messiah. There is a contradiction at the very heart of our faith that demands our attention. You see, Jesus is the victor by his death, by his humiliating, humble death. And at the very moment, evil seemed to have won, and Jesus, just another failed Messiah, he rose from the dead to, in fact, break evil's hold on the world, to break evil's hold on you. And here we see this upside-down strength of the kingdom. This is not weakness. This is meekness. Strength does not equal swag or swagger. Run from those people. Because they'll use you. And then they'll fail you. And then you'll stay because they've warped your mind. And then they'll use you again. I don't trust that. So I would suggest strength does not equal swag or swagger, but sacrificial love and clarity of purpose. And that takes us to this second and final point this morning, and that is resurrection, practicing Christ's victory in our everyday life. So if this is what happened on the cross, and this is why, we're even here celebrating the resurrection, then how do we actually practice it? I want to start off with a quote by Gordon Fee, and it'll be on the screen behind me. The resurrection of Christ has determined our existence for all time and eternity. We do not merely live out our length of days and then have the hope of resurrection as an addendum. Rather, as Paul makes plain in this passage, Christ's resurrection has set in motion a chain of inexorable, inexorable, and that means unstoppable, events that absolutely determines our present and our future. That ought both to reform the way we currently live and to reshape our worship into seasons of unbridled rejoicing. So to succinctly summarize Paul's teaching in this passage so far, there's a past 
reality that must have been true. There's a future reality to this resurrection, and it must influence our present. They all go together. So in the past, we've been freed from sins and the power that comes with that. Now, only partially at this point, but in verses 23 and 24, he shows, but all in its time, it's decisive. The victory is decisive. The kingdom is coming. Nothing can stop it. In the future, death will be completely destroyed as Jesus brings the kingdom of God to its climactic consummation. And we will experience complete deliverance in our resurrection with him. What what would you want to be delivered from? Think about that. And in the present, we have hope. And by the way, biblically speaking, hope is a virtue. It's something that must be practiced. It's something that can grow with practice. And we have this present hope based on a certain truth that will happen, catalyzed by a certain event that in fact did happen, and that is Christ's resurrection. And so with Jesus' resurrection, Paul insists that a new world has opened up in which this all-embracing power of sin and death no longer holds sway. But until this happened, it in fact did hold sway. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says that he's made it his life and aim to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection right now. And if you read that, it's actually in the context of suffering that he says that. I don't have time to talk about that now, but what is true is we've been set free from our sins to live a life for the kingdom of God. Death has been defanged. All our enemies will be overcome. And we know where we've been. We know our future. And that should give a lot of clarity to our present. So this is my question for us this morning. Does your life look any different because Jesus rose from the dead? Such an obvious question. And yet such a profound and fundamental question. Does your life look any different because Jesus, in fact, bodily rose from the dead? Right? If you're a Christian, is your life shaped not by something as vague as love, the way that our culture tends to use the word and throw it around, but something as specific as resurrection? And as you reflect on that question now, and hopefully this week, I'd encourage you not only to reflect on how you could do more, right? That's naturally, I think we could say, man, I could do so much more, or I could spend less. Yes. But in my experience, And in my conversations, we tend to go there first and then stay there. But what if we didn't jump over those, but moved through, where can I do more in order to practice resurrection? And when I say do more, I just mean seek to close the gap by God's grace between what is rhetoric and reality, right? That is what is true about the resurrection and what your life looks like. There's a gap in all of our life. But what I'm saying is to do, there are things that we could do to shrink that gap very practically. And we should do more of these things to practice this hope. But another question is, maybe we would love more freely. And I mean love in a very biblical sense, in a self-sacrificial sense. Maybe we would be more willing to die to self as we close this gap. Maybe, just maybe, we would risk more. Maybe we would live instead of staying safe 
And this happens in a thousand ways, 10,000 ways. Something as benign, seemingly, as not saying hi to your neighbor. Eh, well, they might be, I mean, we're about to eat, they're probably about to eat, and don't want to risk that, right? It's so rude. Just knock, say hi. Invite them over for dinner. God, what if it's awkward? It probably will be because you don't know them. And people don't do that. Right? It's awkward when my neighbors invite me over. Why are you doing this? That's what I think. Why are we doing this? This is weird. So it might feel a little risky. But if we can have a vision, if we, and when I say a vision, I mean an image of what's really happening. And that is there are so many factors in our life that are fragmenting us from our neighbors and from our families and from each other. So it can start something as small as taking those types of risks. It could be, well, what could it be for you? Right? I have three or four things looking at the clock, trying to figure out what I want to do here. What would it be for you? Where could you take more risk? Would you risk more Would you pursue the stranger? Would you stand up for injustice, even though you don't feel the effects of that injustice, maybe? But will you say, in your workplace, will you say, in your neighborhood committee meeting, will you say, I know you feel like that's a big deal, but think about who's oppressed in this neighborhood. Let's think about them, too. They're not here, but they're stakeholders. I'm going to represent their interests. You may not even feel that. It may not even affect your life. But are you stewarding what you have to lean in in that place? That's risky for you. But that is practicing resurrection. Because you remember what happens is resurrection starts this unstoppable movement that culminates in the kingdom of God. And what happens in the kingdom of God? Things start looking like heaven. And guess what happens in heaven? Perfect peace. Shalom, flourishing. Whatever God wants That's what happens. And God has told us clearly that injustice does not belong in his kingdom. And so maybe I'll say it this way. Your eternal destiny is on lockdown. Now what? Your eternal destiny is on lockdown. And it's a physical resurrected body on the new heavens and the new earth in the kingdom of God. Now what? That's where we're heading. What are we going to do in the meantime? Who are we going to love? And so, you know, I, I think about what happens in the future uh, and how that affects our present. And, and I have some friends um, that I've been spending time with lately, and uh, I won't look their way because they're here this morning. And uh, they just got to experience something really cool. Uh, and so a couple of you in here have experienced this, and we all have experienced things like this. Uh, most people in March all over the country are preparing for St. Patrick's Day that week. But fourth-year medical students, they're preparing for Match Day. And you know, Match Day is this day where, think about this, you, maybe your whole life, definitely in college, you were preparing to go to medical school. And you're working, you're working, you're working. And then you apply, and then you get in, praise God. And then you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. And then fourth year after you have applied to different residencies and you've interviewed with who knows, however many, everyone in the country waits. And on the same day, match day, 
They get a letter that's sealed and they open it and it tells them where they matched for residency. But here's what's crazy to me is they get an email on Monday of that week saying you match, but then you don't find out till Friday. That's just cruel. I don't know why it works that way. But here's the thing. What happens when they open that letter and they find out where they've matched? What happens? Do they go immediately to the library and start studying? No. Do they worry about what's going to happen in the next three to five years, where they're going to go? No, they just found out. But what do they do? They rejoice. They tell people, hey, I matched at this place. I'm going here. The resurrection is something like that. Right? You... We found out that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that. And so does that mean that we go and try to create our own righteousness somehow and impress God with us? I tell you this, nothing is going to impress God the Father more than dying and raising from the dead, which has already happened for you. There's nothing you can do to impress him. And the good thing is, is that's not even what it's all about. You see, in the resurrection... We celebrate. We live freely. We make plans for the future. And those plans affect how we live in the present. We experience things like this all the time. And the resurrection ought to be affecting our present. So, in closing, what are ways that we can practice resurrection now? We practice resurrection when we pray in Jesus' name. Not as a commemoration of an inspiring martyr, but to a reigning king who is alive and who hears and who answers our prayers. Ben spoke to that earlier. We practice resurrection when we take a day off for Sabbath. That's practicing resurrection. I'll tell you why. Because we get a rest from the good gift of work to both resist the more, more, more lie of arrogance It is this arrogance and insecurity. And we get to embrace the identity and value that God has given us in Jesus. You practice resurrection when you do that. That leads me to the next one. We practice resurrection when we're freed from working to make an identity for ourselves. Right? In our performance. We don't work unto the Lord oftentimes. We work in order to make a name for ourselves. An identity. we got to go make an identity. But we actually practice resurrection when we rest in that identity that God has given us. And rather than working for an identity, we work as an expression of the identity we already have. That's practicing resurrection. And that, it flies in the face of the culture around us. We practice resurrection when we befriend people who are marginalized and left behind by the culture around us because we see them as Jesus sees them. And we practice resurrection when we see the world through the lenses of the kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus. When we don't equate flourishing with a prosperity gospel or a poverty gospel, but rather with joy and generosity and freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are a thousand ways that in your life you can practice these. And so our vision at New City is to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say we want this to happen everywhere we live, learn, work, and play. We want to see it flourish. We want to see people flourish in their relationship with God and one another 
and in themselves and with all of creation. And you see, really, another way to say our vision is that our vision is to see our communities practice resurrection. That's what we want to see happen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now um, asking that you would give us these lenses of upside-down kingdom power, that we would see the world as you see it, and that we would not reject the good gifts that you've given us, but we would enjoy them. And at the same time, we wouldn't seek to find life in them. And then if we don't seek to find life in them, we can share these good gifts that we have. We can rejoice in our secured past of forgiveness and our secured future of resurrection. And I pray now that as you, Holy Spirit, come and stir up in our hearts various ways that we can practice resurrection today and tomorrow, that you would increase our hope and increase our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.